Ahoy there, private equity, and welcome to the pod's first fundraising special. PE gets nautical as LPs are hit by waves of re-ups, and there's always a bigger fish as smaller GPs navigate a sea of competition. We're going to need a bigger boat for all the exclusive insight and analysis packed into this episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello listeners and welcome to the pod. I'm Oscar Gein and we're talking fundraising today. On the panel, we've got last week's host and Unquote Features Editor, Kenny Wastel. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Oscar. Good to be here. Good to be on the other side of the table again. And also Unquote Research Manager and Fund Guru, Gareth Morgan. Welcome, Gareth. Thanks, Oscar. Thanks for having me along. Uh, So as that intro just alluded to, we're going to be talking about a kind of bifurcation of the European buyout fundraising market, whereby larger brand name managers raise faster and faster, while fundraising into the lower mid-market seem to be stalling and taking longer than ever. Um, would you say that's a fair summary of the situation, Kenny? I, th- I think it probably is a, a fair summary on the whole, which I, I suppose is a, is a blessing for us, seeing as how we have dedicated an entire uh, podcast episode to it. Good to hear. Um, from a from a dry statistical perspective, if you'll indulge me briefly, uh, I have had a look at, at our data for the last two years. So looking specifically at funds that have held their final close since January 2017 uh, in terms of fund sizes across Europe, but particularly in the established markets. Uh, so in France and the UK, I'm thinking specifically funds that are larger than one billion have reached their final close far quicker than, than those of a smaller size. Um, so, I mean, if, if we will look more specifically at this in France, um, billion euro plus funds reached that final close four times faster than those uh, raising total commitments in the 500 to 1 billion euro range. Was the trend most notable in France? Is that where you picked that region? It was, it was absolutely more, more notable in France than, than elsewhere. But in the UK, while it wasn't perhaps as dramatic a picture, it was still, it was still noticeable. Um, so uh, billion euro plus funds took about two thirds of the time taken for vehicles in the 500 to 1 billion uh, in total commitments. Uh, and again, billion billion euro plus funds raised almost twice as fast as funds in the 100 to 500 million sort of target. So, I mean, I, I would imagine a lot of that is due to LPs increasing their allocations to the asset class on the whole. Um, and also this trend, obviously, that we're hearing quite a lot about of uh, investors consolidating their GP relationships. So they're essentially making more in total commitments to fewer fund managers, which implies that they're going to make commitments to larger funds. Yeah, this rings a bell, actually. And um, I think Gareth actually wrote a fundraising chapter in our annual buyout review about this phenomenon. The annual buyout review is our statistical look at the year that was, which will be uh, published shortly. Um, but Gareth, what were people saying to you about this environment and what's been causing it? Yeah, I mean, this is something that, that several people in, in the market have actually mentioned to me. Um, and I think a lot of the, the driver of this is, is really what Kenny mentioned among with, with LPs consolidating GP relationships, so committing more money to fewer funds. Um, naturally, they want to, to commit that money to their best performing managers. Um, so what that does is create a real, real kind of not an artificial demand for for the best performing managers, but certainly an amplified demand. Um, and so that also means that for LPs with with fewer relationships, it's really important for them to maintain those relationships. So they can't 
afford to miss out on a fund because that might mean that two or three funds down the line, you still can't get in with those managers. So for, for an LP, the day-to-day work generally seems to be mostly re-ups. They're looking at, at their existing managers. So if they're spending a lot of time on that, then probably they don't have as much time to look at other things, you know, new relationships, more differentiated funds, maybe in the lower mid-market, which could be driving some of this uh, difference that we've seen in the statistics. Exactly, yeah. I, I, I suspect it is. I would be very surprised if they had any time at all to, to spend on newer relationships. This kind of gives a natural advantage to to those firms who are maybe on fund six, fund seven, fund eight, against firms that are, that are relatively new and, and maybe looking to broaden their LP base. Okay, uh, I just want to come back to you quickly, Kenny, on this one, because I know we've looked at the top 10 fastest fundraisers in the last two years, and not all of them actually fit into this category, do they? They don't all fall, fall into this category, no. But there, there are certainly some sort of platform extensions and uh, GPs sort of diversifying into new strategies. But there are a lot of sort of fourth, fifth, sixth generation funds. There are a lot of um, a lot of brand name GPs in the top ten uh, that that we've looked at. So we've got TPG, RDN, Invest Industrial, ECI, and Waterland. I'm actually reading that off of my my notes. I haven't memorized those, uh, but you know some really big brand names in there. Um, but also, yeah, there are there are a lot of fourth, fifth, sixth gener- generation funds. I think obviously that makes quite a, a lot of logical sense, to be honest, beyond what Gareth was saying about not wanting to, to miss out on future fundraisers. If we're speaking specifically just about how quick the fundraise is, if you've already got a relationship with your LPs, and I think um, Bullmark Capital actually have just recently closed their, their sixth uh, flagship funder, a good example of this, uh, with 94% uh, of their commitments coming from existing LPs. If you've already got those relationships and you've been, you know, giving strong, strong results in your previous funds, um, the conversation is going to be a lot quicker than if you're a first time fundraiser. And indeed, Bullmark actually, I think, took two months to, to raise that fund and at 60% higher than their predecessor. So it kind of fits the, the picture, really. Yeah, definitely very quick. And um, I suppose it shows that the bifurcation is not just along size lines, although maybe we can see it when we look at how dramatically the average days on the road has come down for the funds over a billion. There are certainly, you know, like you say, managers on their fifth, sixth, seventh generation in the lower mid market that are still getting the job done very fast. Where presumably the role of the, the placement agent is less less crucial than it is in the in the earlier. Yeah, we'll runs. come on to the role of placement agents in the minute of our special guest. Um, but I think, uh, Gareth, you'd picked out a few funds that didn't quite fit this rule that uh, had done very well. Perhaps some of them with the help of placement agents, some of them perhaps without. Yeah, so there are a few relatively smaller funds um, that managed to raise very quickly with quite quite differentiated strategies. Varka Partners raised their third fund um, after th- just three months on the road, targeting the Finnish mid-market. Uh, they didn't use a placement agent, um, whereas a couple of UK first-time funds closed recently very quickly. Um, APRE Capital Partners closed their first fund in six months, I think. And that was um, a Reed fund, wasn't it? It was Reed, yeah. And then Inverleith closed a 60 million euro fund in six months as well. Um, again, that was their first time fund. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and to come back to the theme of placement agents, I've spoken to the Monument Group's Carl Adam uh, about why these firms would ever hire a placement agent and a little bit more detail on the work and process involved. 
uh, and we'll be back with that interview after this. Hello listener, I'm here at Monument Group's headquarters with Managing Director Carl Adam. Hi Carl, thanks for having me over. Hi Oscar. Um, so I'm here to talk to Carl about an interesting development that we've noticed in the European fundraising market. Um, now Carl, you're actually one of the first people to mention this development to me uh, sometime last year. and I've heard it from a couple of other people as well. It seems like we're experiencing something of a bifurcation of the market. Uh, could you talk our listeners through the phenomenon? Yeah, sure. I mean, what we've seen is some raises in the past year or so, or even longer, probably 18 months plus, happening very, very quickly in, in sort of three months of official marketing time. Um, and others which are taking much longer than they would have in prior years. So, for example, a fundraising that would have taken six months in, in another year is now taking 12 or, or even 16 or 18 months. Um, and, and we see the very fast raises tend to be the larger brand name GPs and secondly, lower mid-market firms, which have a clear differentiation and strong track record. Those guys are raising quickly. And then the others, the sort of large sea of lower mid-market firms, which have you know, more mediocre performance potentially, uh, are kind of getting lost in a crowded market. Yeah, that's something we've definitely seen in our data, actually. Uh, when you look at European buyout funds um, with a volume of over a billion euros, you see a massive drop in um, num- average number of days on the road. So in 2016, this was 404 days, uh, down to 292 days in 17, and then down to 273 days in 2018. Um, But when we do look at some of the fastest raises, quite a few of them are platform extensions by brand names. Um, So if we, for example, TPG Growth Fund 4 was a very fast one, RDN Growth 2, and also Invest Industrials Growth Fund all raised very quickly. Do you think LPs perceive these as safer options? Yeah, I think there is a certain brand recognition that that people sort of trust. Um, They also, I guess, if they've built conviction in the GP initially in their larger cap fund, they trust them to hire the right team um, and to apply the firm's sort of oversight and investment strategy to this new asset class. And, And so provided there is that sort of trust and understanding with a bunch of individuals built up over time, they're much more likely to back them into a new uh, asset class. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, so I guess for the lower mid-market funds, the, the, the C of lower mid-market funds, as you just put it, which is a nice expression, um, that can take a little bit longer. Um, I mean, what can they do to sort of better articulate their strategies to LPs? I guess the question is sort of, how can placement agents help them out? Um, I think oftentimes it's a the first place to start is helping the GP to truly understand their strengths, which sound, might sound kind of obvious, but you know we do see a lot of groups coming in who talk about proprietary sourcing networks and think that it's some sort of a distinctive, amazing thing and don't quite appreciate the fact that everybody says the same thing. So it, the first step is really just helping them to understand what what is it about them that makes them special. You know, is it their sourcing networks? Um, their investment strategy, the way they work with companies, etc. Can you sort of give us a bit of an example? I know you may not want to name any names, but of uh, you know how you've helped a GP out with uh, this sort of strategy change. Yeah, sure. I mean, one one firm I'm thinking of is in the Dach, German-speaking um, European middle Mittelstand. Um, you know, who came to us talking about the differentiation being the sourcing from their wonderful networks which is something that, that a lot of GPs say. But if you spend time digging into that, you say, okay, great. Well, what are those networks? You know, how did you build them? Why are they helpful to your sourcing strategy, etc.? cetera? Uh, it turns out in this case that they really were quite focused on founder-owned companies in a specific part of Germany. Um, 
and they had very long-standing relationships with those founders and they were able to translate that, translate that into really interesting deal flow. So then if you can bring that point out in, in the marketing materials about the founder networks that they have and why those matter, that's far more compelling than purely just saying we sourced through proprietary networks. So it's really actually about just helping them explain in more detail. Um, the, they, would you say they often actually know the right points? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you know some sometimes GPs or placement agents view um, a PPM or a slide deck as almost a, a necessary evil which you need to quickly put together and then get out to market. We, I think, spend a lot more time really thinking through um, the points like differentiation and try to tease that out in the materials and including many iterations of those materials to make it as, as crisp as possible because that's the only way you can really stand out in a crowded market. Uh, differentiation is uh, definitely a, a term that we hear quite a lot. Um, so it's good to have a sort of uh, concrete example of uh, what people are talking about in the fundraising context there. Um, so the last question just before you, I let you go, Carl. Um, how's the sort of LP sentiment for the funds that you'll be working on in 2019? Are you expecting a big year? And do you think this strategy is, sorry, you think this phenomenon is going to continue? I think most LPs are expecting to have another busy year. Um, I, the ones I've spoken to recently think that the wave of re-ups will slow down a bit. So they're expecting to be busy in Q1 of 19 with these re-ups, including a lot of the big sort of mid, mid to large cap European GPs coming back. But a lot of LPs are expecting after that to be relatively less busy with re-ups, so obviously have more time for, for new fundraisings, which is, a, which is encouraging. Um, there is, of course, a significant, in my opinion, risk of macro event this year um, or, or in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. Um, you know, there are various triggers for that, which, which people will know about, for example, Brexit. Um, and I guess people are thinking about how that will impact upon their private equity program. So are they looking more at distressed or turnaround type strategies now rather than growth plays, for example? Um, and also the extent to which the denominator effect impact, impacts their fund investment program. So as the public markets fall, how will that affect their investment pace? I think a lot of people are considering these kinds of things during the course of 19. Great. Well, um, I hope you're wrong about the macro event, or Rob, I hope you're right. I hope we don't have one, but we'd of course look forward to covering it on Unquote. Thanks very much for your time, Carl. Thanks. So I might be a bit biased there, but I thought that was a very interesting interview, and uh, especially to hear from Carl um, a, a specific example of how he's helped a GP to better articulate their strategy, go into detail on certain points around sourcing. Um, and does that match with what you've heard from LPs, Gareth, of uh, what the kind of things that they want to see in marketing materials? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a really interesting stat that, that Hamilton Lane put out um, towards the end of last year, I think, and they were on track to review about a thousand PPMs in 2018 that is a lot so yeah so you can imagine that they're going to be pretty saturated um so it really really helps to be able to to articulate what it is you're trying to do in that way to get your foot in the door and get to meet them and then and then go through the kind of in-depth marketing that that carl was talking about there i thought it was really interesting to to hear him talk about GPs claiming to have proprietary sourcing networks so i think we've all heard heard that marketing spiel from them but to, to have a third party be able to come in and say, 
what it what what do you mean when you say you've got a proprietary sourcing network how how does that work how have you built it that's probably invaluable for a gp because you know it's actually quite rare that they're going to be marketing themselves effectively they they're deal doers they they don't really want to be spending their time doing this so i think that that really speaks to to the value that a placement agent can bring to to the fundraising process and and to give the gp an advantage in the kind of market that we've just been talking about and the other thing i guess to pick out uh, i noticed carl used the phrase official marketing time um, and I'm sure some of those funds had extensive pre-marketing, uh, you know, quiet conversations behind closed doors of LPs before they they were actually out on the road. Um, but I think it's not always such an involved process, especially with the more mature funds that we talked about earlier. Um, sometimes the place, the role of the placement agent perhaps evolves a little bit for those. Um, would you say, Kenny? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, this very much comes back to, uh, sorry to keep harking on about about Bullmark, but it was a a recent very quick uh, fundraise. Um, uh, It comes back to to that story, which is a a fundraise that Campbell Lutchens worked on. And when I received the the, uh, press release of of the the announcement that that the fund had closed, I saw Campbell Lutchens' name on there, but it, it wasn't down as a placement agent. They were down as a financial advisor, an exclusive financial advisor or something on, on the fund. And uh, when I actually contacted uh, Beaumark to, to discuss the, the fund, I, I kind of pressed them on this and I said, presumably that is, you know, the, the, to me, Campbell Hutchins is pretty much a pure placement agent. Uh, and he said, well, we've, we've worked with them a lot before, but uh, to be honest, in this case, they provided other uh, advisory services really that I mean as I mentioned they had a huge proportion of their their LPs were existing LPs and I kind of I, I guess it kind of makes sense there that uh, that placement agents will have that degree of flexibility so they'll have other things that they can bring to the table and let's let's be honest regardless of how successful a working relationship Bullmark and Cambluchins have had in the past Bullmark aren't going to just give money away so there's obviously a value add that they're bringing um, and I, mean, I, I guess it points to, yeah, to, to a requirement for yeah, and flexibility. Also, absolutely. And also, I guess, the amount of data requests that GPs will uh, receive from their LPs during a fundraising process, especially if it's a bigger fund that's got more LPs in, um, it can take up a lot of time. I've heard of a couple of well-established Nordic players recently that have raised very quickly, still hired placement agents, even though they're on later vintages just to deal with that incoming those incoming data requests around the SG operational due diligence that kind of thing has definitely increased in the past few years I would say um, so we've done the sort of sea of uh, mid-market funds to stick with our nautical theme and go to the wave of re-ups uh, that Carl mentioned it was interesting to hear him say that he thought maybe it would end during Q1 or that we, we were getting towards the end of it um, so after that's out of the way, I wonder what what sort of funds do we think are going to benefit most from this? I know that Carl mentioned turnaround funds. Uh, Gareth, have you seen the pipeline? I've not got too much visibility on the pipeline, to be honest. But um, I think if the kind of sensible conclusion would be if you're going to see a wave of re-ups finish, you, you, you might see some, some newer managers fill that space. Um, I suspect from, from all, for all of the reasons that we've discussed previously, they're going to be firms with a, a pretty highly differentiated strategy, something a little bit unique and different that, that really complements a, a broader portfolio of private equity investments on the LP side of things. Yeah, um, so a lot of those 
maybe lower mid-market funds, more sector specialists that have been raising for a bit longer because they haven't been able to get the time with the LPs, we'd exactly. expect to see those close yeah. before the end of the year. Um, and on turnaround funds specifically, because Carl mentioned them, Kenny, and yes. I know you've been uh, looking at distress situations in the UK, do you think there'll be a lot more opportunities coming in recent years? Well, yeah, unfortunately, distressed has been a, a topic, particularly in the sort of high street and casual dining. Uh, it, it's something that we, we covered quite extensively beforehand at, at Unquote. Um, but yeah, it's actually something that I spoke to Sidley Austin, actually, for a, a recent uh, article that I was writing. And they monitor, you know, they monitor potential companies that they could get involved in, in processes for. And uh, they actually said to me that there was uh, the number of potential distressed situations uh, in their pipeline had actually tripled in the last year. So it's, pro- it's possibly not a bad place to, to be looking if you are thinking about uh very specific um, approach to investing. That's true. Although um, I did put this idea, which we discussed it a little bit earlier, I put it to one uh, large cap pan-European private equity firm uh, who said that actually they, they don't see turnaround funds doing better in after a downturn because actually it just makes LPs more conservative. They're more likely to just stick with the relationships that they already have. So anything specialized that's outside of their normal stable of managers would be even less likely to get time so we'll have to wait and see i suppose um anyway as fascinating stuff guys unfortunately i've got producer tim waving at me through the glass and telling me that it's time to wrap up just before we go allow me to remind you to subscribe to the unquote private equity podcast on spotify or apple podcasts or you can continue to listen on the unquote website unquote.com my thanks go out to the monument group's carl adam both my panelists here in the studio producer tim and you, listener, we'll speak to you soon.